Hey, podcast listeners, this is Kobe from the Common Thread Podcast. I'm here with Matthias, another team member, and uh, Reverend Julian Cook, uh, who is the uh, assistant director for Thurman Networks here at the Thurman Center. Um, on our first episode, when we covered MLK and the latter years of uh, MLK's life, where he was a bit more radical, we had a very long discussion uh, with Mr. Cook, and it was an enriching discussion that went in all sorts of directions. And all we were able to really give to you was uh, the part that touched on MLK because that was what the episode was about. But what you don't know is that there was this whole other segment of our conversation that we found enlightening and interesting. And we've been meaning since then to come back to this topic. And the topic is Chicago. Now, to set the stage for you, the reason it came up in that MLK episode is because MLK went to Chicago and had a really, really tough time. He uh, said that Chicago was one of the hardest places to take the movement, if not the hardest place to take the movement. And so what we want to do on this episode is start there with MLK and touch on the racial politics of Chicago really from that time uh, through the present and through current events where uh, pretty much the Laquan McDonald shooting and uh, the drastic rise in, um, in homicides over uh, the, the last year. So uh, with that, I'm going to toss it over to Matthias and, and he'll really get us into this. Okay, so I guess the, the, the symbolic moment of um, uh, Dr. King's time in Chicago was the, the march at Market Park in the Market Park neighborhood in which he was actually physically assaulted, spat on, um, rocks were thrown at him, that kind of thing. A level of uh, physical opposition that even in the earlier moments of the movement in the South, Dr. King was never confronted with directly. Um, and at this stage, what, what needs to be understood is that Dr. King is a Nobel Peace Prize winner. And still, people people basically assaulted him with a viciousness that he had not encountered in his early earlier campaigns in the South. Um, can, you, can you talk a little bit about the reasons that Dr. King experienced such difficulty in dealing with the, ish, the racial issue in Chicago? Yes. Uh, one major part of that, and, and of course it's at that Marquette Park march that uh, Dr. King makes the statement that he did, that very what has become a very famous statement, that Chicago was the most racist city that he had ever visited uh, because of the segregation that was there, but also just because of the incredible response that he experienced in Marquette Park. And part of that was because there were already these existing tensions in the city between, um, between blacks and whites as it came to housing. Blacks and whites could not get along in Chicago, partially because whites and whites could not get along in Chicago. <laughs> you had Polish folks who lived here. The Irish famously lived in Bridgeport. Um, uh, Italians lived in their section of the city, Maxwell Street. Then there was Greektown, Jewtown. We had all of those sort of places in Chicago where uh, Europeans could not get along very well. So then you tried to have blacks encroach from what was known as the Bronzeville area. Uh, because the Bronzeville just could not hold any more black people. It, it was it was filled to the brim. Right. Uh, people were living in squalor. By the by the time King gets there, the projects have already been built. Uh, the the largest in the nation was of course in Chicago with the Robert Taylor Home that housed something like thirty three thousand yeah. people, the size of a small city, in um, a number of high rise units. Uh, so when King arrives, the projects are experiencing their sort of downturn. 
after having been built in the early to mid-50s, most of them. Um, some of them in the late 40s as a part of the uh, GI Bill. So, uh, but King comes to the city in, in, with, in the midst of this and uh, meets these tensions head on as, as black folks are trying to move westward in the city. They had already been um, sort of east or toward the east-southeast side. Now they're moving in Marquette Park. They're moving toward the western south side portions of the city, Gage Park, Marquette Park, all of these other areas. And the white folks there are just not having it. And so when King comes and says the issue in Chicago is housing, we've got to tackle this. Uh, he rents this apartment on the west side of Chicago, which is run down, and he realizes that he's paying more for that rundown apartment than folks who live on the Gold Coast are paying in these very lu uh, luxurious apartments. He's paying more on the west side, as black folks had known for years. Uh, so when he gets to Marquette Park, the response that you see is a clear response from white people saying, black folks are not moving into our neighborhoods. Now prior to this, there had already been some bombings of black homes, of black folks who had dared to move into the Marquette Park area or the Gage Park area. Uh, there had been crosses burned. One doctor, yeah, a doctor, a very well-known uh, Southside doctor, black doctor, had had his home bombed as well uh, in, in the Gage Park area. So King is coming with, uh, with that sort of fire mm -hmm. up under him. Right, and um, and just and just structurally, how how can you can can you tell us how how King's approach and uh, his vision of how um, the the entire process, I guess, of bringing attention and reform to the issues of housing and racial discrimination was neutralized politically yes. and socially within the context of uh, the Chicago structures. This will be a controversial statement for some, but it's not for those who really know what went on. King did not understand the northern city and how it worked. Uh, he was used to a southern movement based in the church, uh, based uh, on high moral arguments. Uh, he did not understand the landscape of the northern city. And Andy Young told him so. He told him that that was a great mistake to make, especially after the failures in Albany. Uh, he, Andy Young, his, one of his closest confidants, said, we don't need to go to Chicago. But, of course, who also doesn't get credit is Mahalia Jackson, mm -hmm. who uh, was a gospel singer who had settled, like most folks, from her neck of the woods. She was from New Orleans. And so New Orleans and Mississippians settled in Chicago because that's the first stop right. north, right. major city north of the Mason-Dixon line. Detroit was full of folks from Alabama and Georgia, but that's just how the migratory patterns worked. But uh, King... King did not understand, and I'll give you an example. Um, King talks about this horrible apartment that he rents. Uh, Mayor Richard J. Daley finds out where he's renting, and King, of course, because he's about dramatizing the movement, finds the most dilapidated apartment. Uh, just because he goes to find the most dilapidated doesn't mean that folks weren't living that way. Right. Most people were living that yeah. way, but he found what the most dilapidated apartment he could have. And... Uh, but Richard J. Daly calls his bluff and has the streets and sanitation workers to go by and clean up the neighborhood before King gets there, before these big photo ops with Ebony Magazine of King in this apartment. So the apartment gets cleaned. It's spick and span by the time King gets there. The shattered glass that was there at one point is all cleaned up. Uh, code violations have already been issued. And it, would, it seemed that every time King would make a speech, 
at one of the few Chicago churches that would open to him, which I hope we'll talk about a little bit later, uh, it, it seemed that Mayor Daley would get news of it and would fix the problem and, and basically stand and say, I don't know what this man is complaining about. We've done everything we can to welcome him. Um, Daley even wants to throw a welcome parade, as you've heard, for Martin, for Martin Luther King Jr. driving through the streets of downtown Chicago. He really knows how to make this work. So that, so obviously the, the politics of Chicago itself yes. are, are obviously crucial to this equation. Yes. Right? And um, so much so that, that the way King characterized it, it was a very eloquent quote, as he said, if we crack Chicago, then we crack the world. And yes. that if uh, black empowerment occurred in Chicago, it would take off like a prairie fire across the land. You have it. Now, obviously, that situation has yet to be cracked, yes. as is reflected by the state of uh, current affairs in Chicago today. And so to understand that, can we, can we talk a little bit about the evolution of uh, Chicago machine politics in yes. terms of the different coalitions that were built and organized in terms of... Of, uh, the political process and how that translated to electoral outcomes and pol policy outcomes as well? Yes. Early on, um, what happened with Chicago is that the Irish became sort of the, the big machine politicians in Chicago. And uh, unlike, their, under, unlike their predecessors, what they did was that they saw that Chicago, black Chicago was growing uh, after World War I in particular, it really started to boom, uh, and what they did was that they did political favors for many for many black folks, and they found among the most educated black folks and black ministers, these high-profile black pastors, they found them and sought them out and made them uh, and put them in uh, in their good graces. So they did political favors for them. They made black folks, uh, particularly black men, uh, democratic committeemen. Uh, so that they had some control, but it was all a way of policing politically the black community. So political favors were done for big churches like Olivet Baptist Church or the First Church of Deliverance. Those are key names. The Clarence H. Cobbs was the pastor of First Church of Deliverance. He becomes a major roadblock for Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, and he was very close friends with Richard J. Daley, who was also a part of that Irish machine. In that machine, that Democratic machine, comes the father of Harold Washington also, who was an alderman, but a machine alderman, um, who was done wrong by the Democratic, the white Democratic machine. And as a result, Harold Washington never forgot the way that they did his father wrong and uh, runs eventually as an anti-machine candidate. Right. So the, so those are all the sort of politics that are working there. Mm -hmm. right. So so since we're opening the parentheses yeah. of uh, Harold Washington, I think that the notion that his father was done wrong is also interesting when considering that uh, after the fact, Daley's son is defeated by Washington in the Democratic Democratic nomination process that eventually resulted in his ascendancy to the mayor uh, to the mayorship of Chicago. Absolutely. So you so you want to talk a little bit about how. Uh, the fact that uh, Harold Washington was birthed, I guess, within the context of the Chicago machine and therefore had uh, a very fine-tuned understanding of how it worked yes. and how to exploit it to his advantage yes. and how that eventually led to the kinds of policies that he implemented as mayor in Chicago. Yeah, Harold Washington, of course, as you have already stated, 
and I will state uh, even further, it was, was born into the machine. His father was an alderman and a committeeman, a Democratic committeeman with uh, the Chicago Irish machine. And uh, Harold worked in that, at first as an intern. He then went off to the, into the military. Uh, he was uh, uh, one of the counselors for Mayor Richard J. Daley. And uh, while working in law school, he went to Roosevelt and then was one of the few blacks in his class at Northwestern. Uh, and I want to say this because often folks do not focus on this, but Harold Washington was really the intellectual who became mayor. This was a highly uh, efficient and proficient uh, thinker. And the reason he was able to beat, in, in, in a sort of cursory way, beat uh, Richard M. Daley and Jane Byrne, who was the representative of the machine, was because he was able to articulate his vision for Chicago in a way that spoke to black folks and said to black folks, Latinos, women, and LGBTQ-identifying folks in the early 80s that they did really have a chance at winning. And so he was able to mobilize folks as a result of that. Uh, Harold Washington is, is key. It is key. I, I want to go back to, mm -hmm. so, all right, so when, by the time King shows up, yeah. you've got a serious housing problem. Absolutely. It's, serious redlining problem. The city is incredibly segregated. So I want to go into how this ha this had already come about, and I want to touch on it using Lorraine Hansberry. Oh, yes. Raisin in the Sun. A Raisin in the Sun, which, uh, you know, due to the benefit of modern technology I just looked up, was 1959. So this, okay. is, this is about six, six years mm -hmm. before King shows up. Mm -hmm. and, and if you can discuss redlining and the problem that that Lorraine Hansberry so artistically captured in that play. Yes, and I want to say before I start that, that Harold Washington was not disconnected from the redlining issue, and I'll explain how that worked. Mm -hmm. uh, Lorraine Hansberry, of course, has great experience in Chicago. She's living in Chicago, along with folks like Gwendolyn Brooks and this whole black arts community that lives in Chicago. Uh, but what she's talking about are these southern migrants, like my grandparents, who came up from Mississippi, like Mahalia Jackson, and uh, found that they could live in what was called the Bronzeville community. Bronzeville, next to Harlem, was probably the most self-sufficient black community in the entire country. You had black doctors, middle-class folks. You had black nightclubs. Jazz is there. I mean, that's the biggest jazz scene in the country. Jazz and blues much later, but jazz at the time, biggest scene in the country. Chess Records is right up the street in the Bronzeville community. Um, and so, but, but what happens is when all of these migrants, the fastest movement of people in the entire history of the United States, move from Mississippi, Georgia, Alabama to Chicago and places like it, the, the city becomes full. They've been restricted to these very small areas in the city. Uh, Bronzeville from basically, let's say, 12th Street down to about 54th Street at the time. And they could not move outside of that. State, they could go as far as State Street on the west side and as far as, um, um, uh, let's see, probably as far as ooh, Cottage Grove to, to the east of the city. So it's, they're, they're restricted. They're blocked in. They can't build up any further, so they have to move out. Uh, they're buying these one-room kitchenettes living in squalor, P 
people share families sharing bathrooms, units that have that house eight people, eight families with one bathroom. They're all using that one for showering, for 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 sanitation of any kind. They're using those bathrooms. It's, it's a terrible, terrible situation. Of course, when it happened to the Irish, Jane Adams fixed that problem, and there was a big movement. Uh, when it happened to black folks, there was no big movement. And uh, well, the big movement that happened later was the projects. Uh, they built the, like I said, the high rises. Uh, CHA or Chicago Housing Authority builds these units. Uh, that didn't work very well, as you see even now. Um, but uh, Lorraine Hansberry is really talking about folks trying to move out of the Bronzeville neighborhoods into these white communities, particularly white Jewish communities, because Jew Jews were frowned upon by broader white society anyway, and they had more favorable relationships with blacks. So we could often move into their neighborhoods. Uh, but, they, but it came at a cost. Because they did not want those neighborhoods integrated, you might be able to purchase the home but you could not get insurance for the home. Right. And so these are the real estate guidelines that, yes. were, that were very subtly altered Absolutely. so that it, it would render any kind of social mobility yes. in terms of movements between neighborhoods impossible you, for, you, you for, for families that even had, even of the best of means, yes. upper-middle-class upper middle, families. Well, the famous story of Nat King Cole trying to move into a neighborhood in Chicago and finding that he could not because there had been a restrictive housing covenant issued. They did not. Now, the housing covenants were not so much in the Jewish neighborhoods. The housing covenants were in the Irish neighborhoods and uh, the Polish neighborhoods where, where whole blocks of folks, or they called neighborhood associations and, and block clubs in Chicago, would covenant together that uh, they would not sell their homes to what was at that time termed a blockbuster. And I have a little bit of experience with with blockbusters because my grandparents were considered blockbusters. They moved into a white neighborhood. Right. And so mm -hmm. on that point, yeah. on the point of your grandparents as blockbusters, yeah. that leads directly to the issue of white flight yes. in Chicago yes. towards uh, the suburb suburban living styles. Yeah. Um, and so so this is a the, the issue of white flight in Chicago, as far as I can tell from, from the reading that I've done, is one that connects pretty intimately to, to, to the global picture of what's going on in Chicago, just in terms of not only uh, the question of segregation, but also the question of economic development, the mm -hmm. disappearance of manufacturing jobs Absolutely. within the metropolitan area of Chicago, and the fact that greater economic opportunity after the disappearance of those manufacturing jobs was in the suburban environment of the Chicago area. And not only that, how uh, infrastructure that was developed basically from the 50s through the 60s through the 70s almost deliberately, not almost deliberately, but deliberately didn't provide the access that would have furnished people in Brownsville, for instance, with uh, transportation to those suburban job opportunities mm -hmm. outside of the confines of the city itself. Mm -hmm. And so... For me, the, the, the issue of white flight eventually leads to, to, to the issue of economic impoverishment um, that rose dramatically in the 70s and 80s um, from, from the start of the disappearance of the manufacturing jobs um, that represented huge employment in Chicago through the 50s and 60s. Um, that, as far as I was, uh, as far as I'm concerned, kind of constituted the the 
the, the foundation of uh, the black participation in the Chicago political machine is the fact that, you know, there were manufacturing jobs in Chicago, and so you were, a- you were able to provide for your family. But what happened is that as those manufacturing jobs left and weren't replaced, that's what precipitated the huge decline in, in economic opportunity and a huge increase in, in crime and in gang activity and the, and the development of the underground crack economy of the 80s. You're absolutely so, right. so if you want to speak a little bit about how all of those things are connected yep. and, how, and how one thing led to another. Another, mm-hmm. and that none of the, none, nothing was done to compensate no. for for all of these different structural movements and economic displacements that that occurred over that period of time. Thank you. Uh, you're absolutely right in what you in the way that you have outlined what what happened. Uh, I want to start by saying that it's important to know that these black folks who move from the south to places like Chicago are moving precisely for. Right those industrial jobs. They can get a job at the stockyards. Uh, Chicago is called the meatpacking center of, 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 the, of, of the world uh, at that point. I mean, they're packing meat daily in the stockyards of Chicago. You can walk off of a train or bus in downtown Chicago at Union Station and go get a job that day. That was just how robust manufacturing was at that time. Uh, but when those jobs leave the city, first going overseas, uh, then moving into other areas of the country. Uh, That's a major issue. All of those black persons who came without education, many of them, and who now live in either housing projects or or remain in Bronzeville or have moved into the west side of the city, which is what you used to hear a lot about, what happened on the west side Uh of the city, have now lost their jobs. Right. And there is nothing done from then until now to properly deal with that level of economic loss and suffering. And and just to just to kind of put some numbers um, in terms of what that economic loss actually looked like. So between 1967 and 1987, uh, the city of Chicago lost. 60% 60% of Absolutely. manufacturing jobs. Yes. And to put that in practical terms, that's uh, around 330,000 jobs that Absolutely. were lost and not replaced. Yes. So that that's that's almost insurmountable in, in terms absolutely. of uh, in terms of the politics, the economics of the situation. These communities were slammed yes. over the course of not even a generation and from from a period of 20 years the city was almost unrecognizable in all in a lot of these sections you're, of uh, Chicago. You're absolutely right, and what and those who might have been able to help these communities have either moved into the downtown areas of the city, the Gold Coast, or have moved to the suburbs. And in, and when you talk about the sort of infrastructural um, support that there was for people of color, uh, there was none. You're absolutely right. The train systems, of course, do not run. Uh, into certain communities in, in Chicago, as they do, as is the case in most urban cities. It, transportation discrimination is very, very real in Chicago in particular. But you also had a major exper- expressway built through the city to offer safe transport to the white uh, workers so that they could safely get from their suburban communities on the south 
uh, in the south suburbs or in the western suburbs without ever having to drive through the impoverished and crime-ridden black communities. And that is known as the Dan Ryan Expressway, named for one of our former governors. Uh, so that, so that, uh, that's very real. And when you, as the saying goes, out of sight, out of mind, when right. you don't even ever have to see the suffering, mm-hmm. which is the case in mm-hmm. Chicago, because of our sophisticated infrastructure, you can make it from the wealthiest places in the south and west suburbs and even the northern suburbs without ever having to see the sort of blight that uh, exists in these communities. So uh, that that's very real. And, and and for years that's how the city that's how the city functioned until right. uh, the projects were torn down. Uh, under Mayor Richard M. Daley in hopes that we might be able to do some sort of mixed and of mixed housing with affordable and market rate and that that would change the communities. But we can talk about that a little bit later, too. So uh, can you just give the listeners context as to where Bronzeville is yes. uh, inside of Chicago and where it is relative to, to the sources of economic opportunity? Yeah. Thank you. Uh, I think... Bronzeville is a historic South Side mm-hmm. community. That's that's very important. Now, Chicago's a very big city, right. and the South Side is ever expanding. Uh, Chicago runs from like seventy-two. It's built on a grid, one of those great industrial cities, built on a grid, so you can get there, get everywhere you need to go very easy. There's a zero point to the city, which is wonderful, and it builds out from there. But Chicago runs from about seventy-two hundred north all the way down to zero, and then from that zero point to about 132nd south. So it's a very, very large city. You can basically drive in any direction for an hour, and you would still be in Chicago. It's, it's massive. Three million folks live in the metro Chicago area. So Bronzeville is this very small swath, as I've said, from 12th Street to 54th Street, basically, is where folks who lived in Bronzeville would have lived. And uh, it's basically this small square that, that everybody knew each other. 47th Street was the famous historic finan- black financial district. They used to refer to it as the Black Wall Street because there you could go and get anything you wanted in the city. The famous Regal Theater where all of these uh, great musicians of that time made their debuts from Billie Holiday on down. Can we um can can we go into greater detail about the significance of uh, Black Wall Street and how it evolved um, over time? Yeah. Um and and what dynamics affected that evolution? Black Wall Street in Chicago would have been Forty Seventh Street without a doubt. It was where black shopkeepers kept their shops. There were there was a long list of black restaurants along this whole strip. Of 47th Street. Interestingly enough, much like the rest of the city, 47th Street had its stopping point right. for blacks. It ran as far as as far east as Cottage Grove, and then it ran as far west as State Street. So between State Street and Cottage Grove on 47th Streets, you would on 47th Street you would have found all that you would have needed. Uh, as as a living person, <laughs> any kind, black or white, you would have found all that you needed and all you probably didn't need on 47th Street. Nightclubs. The famous Club de Lisa is on 47th Street. Uh, this is the club owned by a white Italian gentleman who, uh, but who loves jazz music, and all of the greats come and play 
at the Club de Lisa. Uh, you would have found the, the most delicious restaurants on 47th Street. This is Harold Washington's old stumping ground, the, who becomes mayor of Chicago. He's known widely on 47th Street. Dressmakers, suits, hats, anything you would have needed, you would have found on 47th Street. And all of the great churches are built right around 47th Street. So uh, it, it really is. It's the, black, it's the Black Wall Street. On the issue of Black Wall Street, I think it's really important for us to talk about uh, the, the historical legacy of the civil rights movement mm-hmm. in terms of some of its perceived historical failures, right. insofar as that some people argue that the civil rights movement didn't actually go far enough in terms of enfranchising uh, black people economically specifically and more specifically the impoverished black community. So can you talk about how uh, the the movement, the mobility of the black middle class uh, was actually actually undermined the economic prospects of the more impoverished members of the black community in Chicago and how those two interacted? Mm That's, that's a very important point. I'll, I'll start by saying in the 1970s, as in most major cities in the U.S., blacks experienced some of the greatest growth in wealth that they had ever experienced, partially because of the gains of the civil rights movement. They were able to move into areas of entrepreneurship, uh, into office life in ways that they just had not, that even the most educated blacks who were engineers could not be uh, engineers. They had to be custodians. And now they're able to be engineers. And that's very true in Chicago. Uh, They're moving into these major careers. And with that movement, folks say, I don't need to live in Bronzeville anymore. With the clear victories of the civil rights movement, those housing covenants are no longer that powerful. They're not very restrictive. Uh, And then you have lawyers, attorneys like Harold Washington going around making sure that black folks who want to move into neighborhoods now can move into the neighborhoods they want. That was certainly true of my grandparents who had lived in Bronzeville in a housing project and who had moved to a home on the south side. But you're absolutely right. It was the most, it was the, it was the middle class black who could have afforded to do that. Those who really belonged in, uh, financially belonged in in a place like Bronzeville, uh, stayed. They could never find a way to get out. Right. And and that that's a function of, as we touched on earlier, infrastructure. Infrastructure. Uh, the absence of any kind of compensatory measures for the disappearance of manufacturing that's jobs. That's right. Um, the absence of any kind of political will yes. to really provide the foundations necessary to empower that kind of community. And then when all of the middle class folks leave the area... Uh, and they take their businesses with them into the far south side or the west side of the city, what happens? There's no place for folks to work anymore. Uh, Other businesses move in, and then begins the sort of urban blight that that Chicago has now come to be, unfortunately, known for. Uh, But uh, that is, as you have said, one of the clear paradoxes of the civil rights movement. That while there were gains for the middle class and the upper middle class, it sent the uh, lower classes into a downward spiral that just 
never seem to stop. Right, and, and it seems to me that there's a there, there's a convergence of of not only that that kind of political circumstance in terms of the empowerment in a mm-hmm. lot of ways, mm-hmm. but you combine that, or rather, you compound that with. Uh, an increasing dearth in economic opportunity. That's right. Those two forces together, together, yes. really, really made it so that um, the circumstances and environments in these more impoverished communities really grew more and more dire. Yes. Um, and I think it also, you know, provides a, a, a solid background and context for the rise in the so-called underground economy. And by underground economy, what I mean is uh, the the kind of economic activities that. Um, gangs would have engaged in prior to the 80s and then with uh, the rise of the crack e- e- epidemic in terms of the uh, the crack-related economic right. a- activities right. um, that basically was the antecedent for a lot of the stuff that we see today, which is m- today more linked to uh, Mexican cartel activity, but that really capitalizes on that kind of history, the existing structures yes. of those underground economies in Chicago. Can you discuss um, how those came about right. and how they, they actually interacted with yeah. the political dimension? Because not enough is said about the connection between the underground economy of Chicago and the very real political establishment in Chicago, yes. the, the Chicago political machine. Yes, which, it, which in a sense, if you, if you, if you really discuss it, uh, some would argue that this may not be true now, but it certainly was true then, that Chicago was the center of democratic life. Right. Uh, you could not become president of the United States without winning Chicago Right. Uh, as a Democrat. That, right. was, that was clear. Um, but I will say this. For instance, I'll give you a fine example of how this works. In the year that I was born, 1990, 900 people were killed in Chicago. Uh, homicide. Recently, I think in the last year, 2016, we saw a a real rise and we saw 723 or something like that uh, homicides in the city of Chicago. There were more back in the 90s, but we did not talk about them. And the reason we didn't talk about them is because they were all happening in the impoverished areas. They did not affect the black middle class by and large. They did not affect folks like my grandparents by and large. They affected folks the folks who still remained in Bronzeville the folks who still remained in the projects. Now we're talking about it because uh, with the uh, demolition of the the high-rise projects, there has been a proliferation of folks who once lived in the projects as well as the underground economies that they created, having been locked out of the mass economy. Though There's been a proliferation into the other neighborhoods, into what were formerly middle-class neighborhoods. And now, all of a sudden, everybody's talking about it. Right. Because it's not the kid in the projects being killed. It's somebody's middle-class son being killed now. Right. Who's gotten mixed up in this stuff. Right. So it's very, it's very interesting how this works. Now, the sort of political, how, how that comes about, as you have said, it's because uh, uh, black communities have been locked out by and large, of the, politi- in the, of the political establishment in Chicago. So they do. They create these sort of underground economies. Now in the 1930s, the 20s, the 40s, Chicago's always been a gang city. Uh-huh. Uh, and there was gang activity with folks like Capone and the St. Right. Valentine's Day Massacre. I mean, right. you just go on back. The Irish gangs even, right. forget the Italians, the Irish gangs were really had a stronghold in Chicago and are part of the reason why uh, the Irish came to control Chicago politics. Uh, 
but but black Chicago really got involved in what was called the Bolita movement, which was uh, the numbers racketeering. Right. And after the numbers racketeering, though around that is how you see the first gangs being established. Those were fairly harmless guys. I mean, if you didn't pay them their money, they were going to get you. But by and large, it, it was very different. In the 1960s, with the black power movement, we began to see things uh, change. You begin to see gangs like the Black Gangster Disciples, who are very, very influenced by the Black Panther movement. They do not begin. Uh, we have this image of gangs that is very, very wrong, and it's why we can never seem to understand them. These are very sophisticated organizations, and they started really with an, with, uh, with an impetus toward helping black folks to be able to gain some level of political power to stop police brutality right. in the city. Right. Uh, so that it, when the police came to my neighborhood and beat up my brother, it was one thing when my mama and daddy came out of the house and said, hey, man, that's, not, that's my son, leave him alone. Then they beat mama and daddy, too, and put them in the car as well. It's a different thing when my whole neighborhood can get together, all the brothers in my neighborhood, and we can go out and stand against the police and say, you shoot him, we shoot you. Uh, and that is where the gangs come from. Right. Now, as drugs move into the urban city, they create an underground economy by really taking hold of the drug cartel on the city of, in, in on the south side of the city of Chicago. So you see gangs do become involved in the selling of drugs, uh, not as much the consuming of drugs, which is another bad image that we have of gangs. That's just not true. But early on, uh, Gang, black gangs, the gangster disciples in particular, were responsible for uh, voting right, voting registration rallies. They were also responsible for the baseball and basketball leagues that were started in the projects to the, offer the midnight leagues, the midnight leagues to offer black uh, young young men and young women opportunities to play sports. Uh, before there was this sophisticated effort by the Chicago Park District right. to start these leagues. Um, the Black Panthers were feeding people. My aunt was a Black Panther, and we right. often talk about that. She was on. She would go before classes in the morning. She was in college. She would go and serve a meal. Breakfast program. Breakfast program. Go and serve a breakfast at a church in a church basement. Right. right? right. Don't think a gang's doing that. Yeah. But that's what they were doing. Right. And I, I think that's a, a nice segue into discussing, I guess, the the history and legacy of mm -hmm. the Black Panther movement. Yes. And, the Chicago chapter specifically. You've done your homework. Yeah, <laughs> a little bit. Um, and, and specifically as it relates to, to, we touched on this earlier when we were talking, Fred Hampton. Yes. And, and I guess, talk about Fred Hampton, you can't not talk about the Chicago PD. Oh, absolutely. So, so let's, let's kind of delve into that a little bit. Yeah. Fred Hampton. Uh, I want to say that Fred Hampton... Uh, is just such a powerful figure to me. But I also want to start by, by saying Chicago is a nationalist city. I think next to Philadelphia, when it comes to black nationalism, Chicago is the hotbed of it. A noble Drew Ali and uh, his whole group of folks, the Moorish Science Temple, they come out of Chicago. These black nationalist movements, the, uh, the Garveyites, they have a stronghold in Chicago. Uh, uh, the Nation of Islam, their headquarters Chicago. is in Chicago. 
So it is a hotbed already, the Trinity United Church of Christ, which is, by all accounts is Christian, but it is a black nationalist movement, uh, is founded where President Obama was a member of that church with Jeremiah Wright. Right. <laughs> the infamous. <laughs> You're the, the infamous, infamous. yeah. Uh, that, that comes out of Chicago. That is a very specific culture there. So it is no surprise that the Black Panther Party, once again, I'll make a controversial statement, but I can argue it, uh, is the Black Panther Party out of Chicago is the strongest Black Panther organization in the country at the time, in my opinion. It runs like a well-oiled machine. There were certainly rifts in the road, but you had some of the most brilliant thinkers. At the forefront was Fred, was Fred Hampton. Uh, the brother was deep. He's at, at that time, Loyola. Uh, he is studying preparing to become a law student at Loyola. He is brilliant. He is one of the most incredible speakers you ever wanted to hear. He's able to mesmerize people. And in the aftermath of Martin Luther King Jr.'s death, Pro says, this is the next black messiah. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover and his gang, they say, this is the next. And we've got to do something about him because our job is to prevent the rise, as they said, of a black messiah. So uh, Fred Hampton is going around rallying folks, uh, particularly in colleges, which we have DePaul, University right. of Chicago. Right. And he's, he's so good that he's moving white people right. to the Black Panther cause in Chicago. He spends a lot of his time with white brothers and sisters, uh, which is very different than the other Panther parties. And uh, folks notice this. Uh, uh, supposedly, the long story short, there is a plot created by... Um, Ed Hanrahan, who is the chief of police for the for the uh, Chicago Police Department at the time, he is hoping that Richard J. Daly, who is nearing 70 years of age, will someday decide that he wants to retire, and he wants a he wants a chance to run for mayor. Uh, and he says, "I got to put a feather in my cap. What's the, what's the feather in my cap? I'm going to take down Fred Hampton." So they move. They go to Madison Avenue, where Fred Hampton is living in a small brownstone or graystone, as we call him in Chicago, uh, with his wife and his child. They're doing some planning that evening. Fred Hampton's resting in the bed with his wife and child, and the brothers who are standing at the door, who are supposed to guard the door, are just overtaken because this whole unit of police come in and just shoot. At the time, they thought originally that there was just folks coming into the apartment, this, this, this large group, shooting. The police say Hampton shoots back. It actually wasn't Hampton, it was another guy, and we know now from ballistics testing that there was only one shot fired from a Black Panther, and that shot was probably fired uh, in order to try to resist what was right. going on. They shot this brother up so bad, I mean, you go, when you went to the site, which I'll talk about a little bit later, they later discovered from the ballistics testing that there were people under the house, in the basement of the home, shooting up from the floors in this home. I mean, he was just, it was horrible what they did to this young man. Uh, 22 years old, I think, at the time. What they did to him was just savage. And it was so savage, in fact, that for days on end, uh, and this was very, my uncle who lived in Chicago at that time would get very emotional when he talked about this. And his last name uh, was also Hampton. So I always figured that there may have been some familial connection, although he would never say. But he, 
he would often describe how blacks lined up around the block of that house for days on end to go through the house to tour and see what the Chicago Police Department had done to that home in just ransacking it. Um, of course, eventually, this worked out to the demise of Hanrahan because he could not garner the black vote right. that Daly was able to garner. Right. He was unable to get that black vote ever. And Daly knew that, and that's why he never... Uh, he never supported him for a mayoral run. And Daly, of course, died as mayor of the city of Chicago. Right. Um, so that's, that, um, that also evokes the, the, I guess the, I don't want to say, I, wanna, I, I don't want to go so far as to say the unique place, but at the very least the special place that mm-hmm. the Chicago PD has in the overall structure of the city. Because historically, I mean, a year before the assassination, of Fred Hampton, you have what happened at the the Democratic Grand National Park. Convention. That's right, right. Grand Park. Where, shoot to kill. Right, shoot to kill. Police riot. Yes. And and this isn't and this isn't just targeting. This isn't just targeting uh, black people or or Latinos or other minorities. This is targeting progressives. Absolutely. Who threatened to undermine the Democratic establishment that had a vice grip of Chicago at the time. So can you talk yeah. about how the Chicago PD for it seems to me the vast majority of the 20th century into the 21st century served and serves as the blunt instrument of control, population control, for yes. the political body of Chicago. And this is where you may get me into a little bit of trouble, <laughs> but I don't, I don't mind trouble. I've never minded trouble. Uh, it's very clear that the Chicago Police Department has always served as the arm to... to um, to the establishment of Chicago. For instance, the Irish controlled politics, the Irish also controlled the police department in Chicago. It's very well known. It's very well documented. Uh, and and this is, it's very similar to Boston, actually, where the Irish control politics and the Irish have a stronghold on the police department. And so in the 1960s, although there had always been some black presence on the police department, that was strategic, of course, right. because if you have black presence on the police department, it means you also know what's going on in the black community. Right. Um, uh, so, so that that is to say that yes, th- there is this strong connection that continues even to this day, um, as we know with the Laquan McDonald cover-up, uh, and I was very involved in some of the protest movements around the Laquan McDonald. I call it a cover-up. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was very clear that, that our present mayor, and I will go on record saying it, had, had some knowledge of what had gone on and that they sought to keep it hidden until it was a, it was a clear uh, collaborative effort between the state's attorney's office and the Chicago Police Department and the office of the mayor of the city of Chicago to keep it, to keep it quiet about what had happened. And then once the video could no longer be kept quiet because someone had uh, decided that they would uh, su- they would sue for the video. A journalist, a very wise journalist, who did sue and uh, got the rights to the video, made it public domain. It was very clear that this young man had been brutalized. A mentally handicapped young man had been brutalized uh, in such a destructive way. And now we're learning about things like Holman Square. Um, in my earlier years as a child, one of my most vivid memories in Chicago was the day that George Ryan, his last day as our governor in the state of Illinois, he released and granted clemency to eight wrongfully accused black men 
uh, who had been tortured into confessions for crimes that they did not commit and had spent 20 years, some of them, uh, behind bars. So there has always been this collaborative effort between the police department in Chicago and the mayor's office. And the person who disrupted that for the first time was Harold Washington. Because as a black man and an attorney at that, he had had the experiences that most others, uh, most other pe persons of color had had. Certainly not to the level because he was a well-known political entity. But he knew the sort of harassment that blacks underwent daily. And uh, to understand the gang situation in Chicago, you have to understand the ways that you have to see the room that Fred Hampton right. was murdered in. Right. And then you'll understand yeah. why gangs became so essential. Right. Because if they could do that without recourse, imagine what they were doing to just a regular person. Right. I mean, this, this, the former police chief, John Burge, was accused of, of, of mutilating people and of uh, electrocuting men uh, with uh, their genitalia. I mean, it was, it was just inhumane, savage almost, right. barbaric, what right. we were hearing about. Yeah. And that is the history. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so unfortunately, we're getting we're getting to uh, we're getting to the end of this planned recording session now. Very clearly, very clearly, this we need to do some further work on this. So we're definitely oh one hundred percent, man, one hundred percent. We need to go further into into the interplay between uh, the political forces, the economic forces, the social and cultural forces of yes. Chicago, because. Uh, as we know, as we well know today in 2017, Chicago has become uh, almost a pinata yes. for uh, some some in, in in the federal government yes. to, to point the finger towards the failure of uh, of American institutions, the need for whatever draconian measure to, to eliminate cr the crime issue, to to basically reinvent the way that uh, that the inner city works uh, for better or for worse. We don't really know, right? Mm -hmm. But um, mm -hmm. But uh, it, it is definitely a very current topic, and I, I thank you for coming on and for sharing all of this, this really deep, insightful information. And uh, we're going to arrange for, uh, for, uh, for subsequent parts here because it's very love, much necessary. I would love to help in whatever way I can. It's a great effort. Nah, thank you so much, Reverend Cook. Thank you.